The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, season's greetings to you, the season of budget hearings. Welcome back to the takeout. And we have, as always, Chris Lasinski, Colin Young, Katie Lannon, and Matt Murphy. Hi, folks. Hello. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It truly is. Welcome back to you, Sam. Why, back thanks. from sunnier, warmer climes. Uh, yes. Good seafood, good sunshine. Uh, Katie and Colin, let's start off with you this week. Run us through the first budget hearing out of the upcoming series of eight. Uh, Colin, take us through the top line of, of what we heard at the first hearing this week at the State House with our two new Ways and Means chairman up there at the helm. That's right. Things uh, started to get underway on uh, the governor's budget proposal this week. A uh, little bit of snow on Monday delayed the kickoff of the budget hearing series until Tuesday morning uh, here at the State House in Gardner Auditorium. Uh, but we had about 30 to 35 uh, lawmakers in the same room, sitting as the Joint Ways and Means Committee uh, to hold the first of eight hearings on H1, which is the uh, $42.7 billion fiscal year 2020 budget that Charlie Baker filed back in January. Uh, The budget would raise state spending 1.5% and is built on the assumption that state tax revenues are going to meet projections this current fiscal year and then grow by 2.7% next year. Uh, And uh, that sort of theme of fiscal responsibility emerged pretty early uh, at this first hearing. When they sat down to begin the hearing, uh, word from Department of Revenue was that the state was uh, facing a $403 million uh, gap in the current fiscal year. So that was uh, fresh on the minds of the Ways and Means Committee as they set out to look at next year's budget. Sure, being being cautious, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Caution was the watchword uh, also this week from the economists over at Mass Benchmarks, uh, who took a look at the state of the local and national economy and came back saying, While things are relatively good and mostly stable for now, uh, lawmakers and policymakers really need to um, keep their eyes on revenues and be ready to adjust if need be. And Katie, we heard from a number of the constitutional officers at the hearing this week, uh, and and from them we got a lot of uh, particular concerns with implications for topics from the 2020 election to online lottery. Yeah, one of the things that's really makes these hearings interesting to cover is it's not just about, you know, what percentage increase a particular office needs in its administrative line item. It's a chance to hear um, people like the constitutional officers, like the treasurer, back up why they need that money, what their priorities are, and what they're hoping to pursue. So as you mentioned, um, and as we learned over the weekend, uh, we are now under a year away from the 2020 presidential primary in Massachusetts. So get your Super Tuesday countdown (laughs) clocks ready. And that means that Secretary of State Bill Galvin is also looking at already working on the the 2020 census. He gave some uh, population estimates during the hearing. He he says we're looking at a a 6.9 million population. person population in Massachusetts, of which about 1 million people are non-native born, including 500,000 people who are legally present and another 500,000 who'd be undocumented. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk, uh, especially over the last week or two, about getting an equitable count. Sure. And this is nothing new that we've heard, nothing new from the secretary. We've heard him talking for years now about the importance of an accurate count in this political climate. Um, That 6.9 million number, he says, would uh, have us 
retain the same number of congressional seats. And those numbers are also important for making sure we get an the appropriate amount of federal money for it, things like health care, education, transportation aid. So so one thing the secretary asked for is more state money to conduct census outreach. He said they need to use extraordinary means to get the count this year. Um, and he's talked to the Census Bureau and members of Congress about getting the authority to get tenant lists from public housing authorities the same way he can get lists from nursing home administrators or dormitories for his count. And of course, the more federal funding the state receives, that'll make uh, life a little bit easier for Ways and Means Chairman uh, Aaron Michaelowitz and Michael Rodrigues. Yeah, and they were looking for ways to make things easier um, on the state budget. We heard uh, Senator Rodrigues ask Auditor Suzanne Bump if she had any audits in the pipeline that would yield uh, some big <laughs> dollar savings. Um, sounds like no. Right. Uh, Katie, what did what did Treasurer Goldberg have to say? So her big issue, as it has been for a while now, um, and Colin can back me up here, he's covered this pretty extensively, is so online lottery. Right. Yep. So she's still on online lottery. She she talked a little bit about sports betting, which is the new uh, kind newer wrinkle in that whole situation, the possibility of legalizing sports betting. The treasurer says it's harmful to the lottery, which produces local aid if the lottery is not online and sports betting is legalized. And we got to hear her go into a little back and forth with some of the lawmakers. That's the other really interesting thing to me about these hearings is you get to hear not so much just what people are prepared to say, but what the lawmakers want to know themselves. Senator Mike Brady asked the treasurer about her ad budget for the lottery. He doesn't think the $4.5 million the governor's included is enough. Yeah, that's uh, something that I picked up on at this hearing, too, is uh, we heard Rep. Carol Fiola asking about uh, South Coast Rail, a priority in her district. You mentioned Senator Brady. Uh, he had also asked uh, ANF Secretary Mike Heffernan uh, about the Regency Third Casino process down in southeastern Mass, something that would have a big impact on his district. Sure. And of course, uh, the treasurer's answer on her lottery budget also came back to casinos. She said um, she, said she was going to be candid when she talked about it. She's actually happy that the the potential future Everett Casino has changed its name from Win to Encore because the the more obscure name on a billboard is uh, easier to compete with from an advertising perspective. Colin, as, as lawmakers consider uh, this fiscal 2020 budget, what new or additional taxes are they going to have to work with? Uh, especially, how, how are things looking with the um, new cannabis taxes? Yes, and there's a slew of, uh, of new taxes, increased taxes, uh, and then proposals that the governor has offered uh, separate from the budget. But yeah, you mentioned the marijuana uh, uh, tax revenue, and that's really what I wanted to, to highlight uh, today. Uh, so the, the budget hearing this week was, of course, looking at next year's budget, which is when the state is expecting to take in $133 million in taxes on marijuana sales. For the current fiscal year, which is going to end at the end of June, the state's been saying that they're going to take in $63 million. Uh, and Mike Heffernan, the, the budget chief, was asked this week, how are we doing against that $63 million estimate, which was made way back, you know? Right. Uh, and th things change. Oh, yeah. Things have changed uh, in a big way. Uh, Heffernan said that the numbers are low, but it's still too young of an industry to really say whether they're on or off track on revenues. 
He didn't offer an actual number of, uh, on marijuana tax revenue to date, uh, but the Cannabis Control Commission uh, says that retailers have only sold about $45 million worth of marijuana since the first stores opened in November. Now, the effective state tax rate on marijuana sales is about 17%, or it's an effective 17% rate. Uh, 17% of $45 million is, is $7.63 million. So uh-huh. I'd say they're they're not even close to that $63 million uh, initial target, sure. which, of course, not a huge deal when uh, over the course of the fiscal year, they're expecting to take in about $29 billion in tax revenue. It's a drop in the bucket. Now, Katie, as uh, as uh, ANF Secretary Mike Heffernan was talking to lawmakers on Tuesday, he sort of foreshadowed the February revenues that were due to come out later that day. Uh, how did those end up looking? That's right. He gave us a, a little teaser Um and it, it did end up showing, as, as the secretary hinted, some progress in eating into that uh, $400 million gap that Colin was talking about. It's now down to $292 million, which is better than four hundred. Um, <laughs> February is a, a tiny month for, for tax collections, and we've got the, the biggest four-month period of the year coming up. So it's really anyone's guess where we go from here. We could see the fiscal year ending on a positive note, we could see a situation as we've seen in a, a few recent years where everyone's got to kind of change their numbers at the last minute. So sure. something to, to watch for as we go through the, the rest of these hearings and the budget process as a whole. All right. Well, thanks, guys. And uh, Matt Murphy, uh, the Ways and Means Committee budget hearing wasn't the only hearing on Tuesday. And as a matter of fact, it marked a return to a busy Tuesday of legislative hearings up here on Beacon Hill. We had Transportation Committee kicking things off. And uh, you were over there at the... Um, Children, Families, and Persons with Disabilities Committee. It's a mouthful, I know. It is. It it takes some remembering. But, uh, Matt, they had a couple of uh, uh, bills that, as you say, seem to be on the fast track there. And uh, we'll dig more into the repeal of the so-called cap on kids. But uh, fill us in on on what you heard down there. Yeah, this was an interesting hearing, I guess, because at this point in time, some bills in the House are still getting numbers. But uh, the this committee called a hearing on two bills, one uh, to lift the cap on kids, the, the so-called cap on kids, which is that 19 uh, mid-90s uh, welfare reform law that has been a target of Democrats for a couple of years now, and the other being a ban on uh, gay conversion therapy for minors. And uh, these are two bills that seem to be on the fast track. The committee voted them out of executive uh, session, uh, recommending them to the full House and Senate immediately after these hearings. And uh, these are both pieces of legislation that very nearly got to the governor's desk last session, but died for uh, various reasons in uh, late July and August. Gotcha. So uh, so the cap on kids uh, repeal uh, has bipartisan support. Where did the cap come from? It goes back to 95, right? Yeah, exactly. This was put in place in 1995, and it came at a time when Democrats, uh, both uh, across uh, the state level and at the federal level, uh, when uh, President Bill Clinton were in office, were looking at welfare reforms to encourage people that were receiving public benefits to essentially get back to work. And here in Massachusetts, they sought a waiver from the federal government. They got it, and they were able to put in place uh, this cap that was designed to discourage uh, people on welfare, families on welfare, from having children to get the added benefit. Now, we're talking just about $100 uh, 
uh, per child here, but the cap essentially says that if uh, a child is born to a family that's already receiving, or at any point if they've received welfare benefits in the past, uh, that family is not eligible for an extra $100 for the new child. So while there are some folks who have sort of a provisional opposition to the repeal, saying that they'd like it balanced out with additional reforms, is there anyone who opposes repeal outright? We didn't hear from anybody who actually opposes lifting the cap, and this actually has bipartisan support uh, here on Beacon Hill. Uh, Republicans in the House and Senate support this. The one thing is that Governor Charlie Baker has proposed in his budget to both lift the cap and to uh, put in place some additional eligibility reforms for these family welfare benefits. And uh, this was the reason he ultimately vetoed the bill last August, because he didn't get the package of reforms. He's come back and filed that again this session in his budget. But it appears that the House and the Senate both uh, have an interest in moving quickly just on the cap. There's less appetite for these additional welfare reforms. Right. And and those reforms were filed as amendments by Senator Tarr for the supplemental budget that the Senate considered yesterday, but those were rejected by the upper branch. Yeah, we talked about the hearing where these separate individual standalone bills uh, were being heard, but the Senate actually slipped the cap on kids language into the mid-year spending bill that they debated and passed on Thursday. And Senator Tarr, the Senate minority leader from Gloucester, offered uh, essentially what was Governor Baker's package of welfare reforms as an amendment to the SUP uh, that was voted down. Uh, They rejected it. I talked to Senate President Karen Spilka afterwards. She didn't even seem to be fully versed in what the governor was proposing. She said she didn't know the full impact. Uh, The Senate was not prepared to consider that on Thursday. But one piece that that both Spilka and uh, Senator Sal DiDomenico, the principal sponsor of the cap on kids lift in the Senate, are well versed in is the governor's proposed reforms uh, to SSI benefits. And this is a change that he's seeking. Actually, Governor Patrick sought the exact same change, and it would require the state to calculate Social Security income as uh, income towards uh, eligibility for family welfare. And opponents say this would uh, disqualify some 5,000 families from receiving benefits, and it's essentially a non-starter for people in both, for Democratic leaders, I should say, in both the House and Senate. House Speaker DeLeo, back in 95, actually voted for the bill that included that original cap on kids, right? That's right. There are a few of them actually still left from 95. DeLeo's one of them. I think uh, new new majority whip Joe Wagner was in the House at that time. I mm. think he voted yes. Uh, but people like Kay Khan, who was chairing the, the Children and Families Committee this session, she voted no. She was also in the legislature. Same with uh, now Senator Pat Jalen. Same with now Senator Pat Jalen, exactly. And now we're just waiting to see if the House will go along with the Senate's uh, push to just kind of slip this into the budget bill and get it on the governor's desk very quickly, or if they're going to try and pursue standalone legislation. Gotcha. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Well, speaking of amendments that were filed to that supplemental budget in the Senate this week, uh, Chris Lasinski, you and I were uh, down in the Senate on Thursday when a senator from Worcester County, Michael Moore, proposed a couple of amendments that kind of gave voice to some of the anger that folks out west are feeling and maybe others are feeling uh, with the proposed fare hikes, MBTA. Uh, Catch us up on that. 
Yeah, that's right, Sam. There were actually uh, three amendments filed during the mid-year spending bill discussion in the Senate on Thursday related to the MBTA. Two from Michael Moore that would uh, require MassDOT to hold additional public hearings whenever fare hikes are proposed and that would uh, require uh, a study about uncollected fare revenue. There was a third proposed by Senator Tarr, the, the Senate's minority leader, uh, calling for an independent audit of the MBTA's retirement fund before any fair hikes could uh, come to pass. Now, all three of these were unsuccessful. Moore withdrew his two amendments after making lengthy remarks about why they were important, a common practice we're finding in the Senate, and uh, <laughs> and TARS was ultimately voted down. But it, it was pretty striking to see senators on the floor of the Senate chamber using time in a formal session to call out the MBTA's handling of this fair hike proposal. Uh, Senator Moore you know, pointed out that there was no public hearing scheduled in Worcester, in Worcester County, until representatives and senators from the area sent a formal letter requesting one. And as it turns out, the uh, the Wednesday night hearing out there did not go exactly as people planned. Uh, Senator Moore complained that people found it, quote, ridiculous and outrageous, end quote, because there wasn't a formal presentation. It was basically uh, Steve Poftak, the general manager of the MBTA, walking around, meeting with people, asking them to fill out note cards. Um, so th- there does seem to be a lot of frustration about how exactly the MBTA has been rolling this out. A lot of tension, yeah. Yeah, a a lot of tension. And underneath that, um, just general frustration with the fair hikes themselves. I I think that this cycle hasn't been quite as potent as 2016 when you saw actual protesters interrupting MBTA board meetings. Right. But there does seem to be a growing sense of people Putting out there, okay, we recognize that that fair hikes have to happen, that inflation is real, that we want the T to improve its service and it needs money, but why does the money always come from the riders rather than from other alternative forms of revenue? Right, and the concern with the process of how they get there. But uh, speaking of the process, so with hearings wrapped up, the vote could be as soon as Monday, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. We could see a vote on this fair hike proposal, which for the record would average about a 6.3% increase. So the exact uh, increase in fares is different depending on what kind of ticket type you're looking at. Could see a vote on that as soon as Monday. Um, We don't quite know how that's going to go, but there have been a few new cracks emerging over the past week or so. Right. You saw one just this past Monday with uh, a member of the board voicing some concern. Yeah, Brian Lang, one of the five members of the Fiscal and Management Control Board, uh, basically the the T's oversight board, uh, calling out the plan. He he didn't say he would not support it, but said it would be, quote, completely wrongheaded for the MBTA to rely just on its passengers to generate new money whenever they need to close a revenue gap. Uh, Instead, he, he said that state leaders need to have some courage, that was his word, and pursue some combination of a higher gas tax, new fees on Ubers and Lyfts and other ride shares, or a, a congestion pricing toll system for tunnels and state highways. And the T really does need that new revenue. Uh, according to budget figures they put out on Monday at that same meeting, they're calling for a, a $2.1 billion budget in fiscal year 2020. The deficit would actually increase. It would about double in that year if not for some combination of the proposed fare increases and other cost-cutting measures. Uh, With those in place, the MBTA says that it can actually bring the deficit lower than it is right now. But it's very clear by their own internal projections, they are really relying on uh, charging customers more to to help make up that difference. Gotcha. Well, Well, we'll be watching on Monday.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be interesting. All right. Well, thanks, folks. Uh, wish this Friday found me in Bermuda as well. But I uh, <laughs> uh, hope everyone has a great weekend wherever you are. And wherever we are, there'll be more daylight. Have a good weekend. There will be. Don't forget. Spring forward. Spring forward. Spring forward. There you go. Turn them forward. Thanks. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.